Chapter 13 of the Story of Young Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Young Abraham Lincoln by Wayne Whipple. Chapter 13 The Young Legislator in Love. Smoot's Responsibility. Paying his debts had kept Lincoln so poor that though he had been elected to the legislature, he was not properly clothed or equipped to make himself presentable as the people's representative at the state capital, then located at Vandalea. One day he went with a friend to call on an older acquaintance named Smoot, who was almost as dry a joker as himself. But Smoot had more of this world's goods than the young legislator-elect. Lincoln began at once to chafe his friend. Smoot, said he, did you vote for me? I did that very thing, answered Smoot. Well, said Lincoln with a wink, that makes you responsible. You must lend me the money to buy suitable clothing, for I want to make a decent appearance in the legislature. How much do you want? asked Smoot. About two hundred dollars, I reckon. For friendship's sake and for the honour of Sangamon County, the young representative received the money at once. Anne Rutledge, Loved and Lost Abe Lincoln's new suit of clothes made him look still more handsome in the eyes of Anne, the daughter of the proprietor of Rutledge's Tavern, where Abe was boarding at that time. She was a beautiful girl who had been betrothed to a young man named McNamara, who was said to have returned to New York State to care for his dying father and look after the family estate. It began to leak out that this young man was going about under an assumed name and certain suspicious circumstances came to light. But Anne, though she loved the young legislator, still clung to her promise and the man who had proved false to her. As time went on, though she was supposed to be betrothed to Mr. Lincoln, the treatment she had received from the recreant lover preyed upon her mind so that she fell into a decline in the summer of 1835, about a year after her true lover's election to the legislature. William O. Stoddard, one of the President's private secretaries, has best told the story of the young lover's despair over the loss of his first love. It is not known precisely when Anne Rutledge told her suitor that her heart was his, but early in 1835 it was publicly known that they were solemnly betrothed. Even then the scrupulous maiden waited for the return of the absent McNamara that she might be formally released from the obligation to him which he had so recklessly forfeited. Her friends argued with her that she was carrying her scruples too far, and at last, as neither man nor letter came, she permitted it to be understood that she would marry Abraham Lincoln as soon as his legal studies should be completed. That was a glorious summer for him, the brightest, sweetest, most hopeful he yet had known. It was also the fairest time he was ever to see, for even now, as the golden days came and went, they brought an increasing shadow on their wings. It was a shadow that was not to pass away. Little by little came indications that the health of Anne Rutledge had suffered under the prolonged strain to which she had been subjected. Her sensitive nature had been strung to too high a tension, and the cords of her life were beginning to give way. There were those of her friends who said that she died of a broken heart, but the doctors called it brain fever. On the 25th of August, 1835, just before the summer died, she passed away from earth. But she never faded from the heart of Abraham Lincoln. In her early grave was buried the best hope he ever knew, 
and the shadow of that great darkness was never entirely lifted from him. A few days before Anne's death, a message from her brought her betrothed to her bedside, and they were left alone. No one ever knew what passed between them in the endless moments of that last sad farewell, but Lincoln left the house with inexpressible agony written upon his face. He had been to that hour a man of marvellous poise and self-control, but the pain he now struggled with grew deeper and more deep, until, when they came and told him she was dead, his heart and will, and even his brain itself, gave way. He was utterly without help or the knowledge of possible help in this world or beyond it. He was frantic for a time, seeming even to lose the sense of his own identity, and all New Salem said that he was insane. He piteously moaned and raved, I can never be reconciled to have the snow, rain and storms beat upon her grave. His best friends seemed to have lost their influence over him. All but one, for Bowling Green, managed to entice the poor fellow to his own home a short distance from the village, there to keep watch and ward over him until the fury of his sorrow should wear away. There were well-grounded fears lest he might do himself some injury, and the watch was vigilantly kept. In a few weeks reason again obtained the mastery, and it was safe to let him return to his studies and his work. He could indeed work again, and he could once more study law, for there was a kind of relief in steady occupation and absorbing toil. But he was not, could not ever be the same man. Lincoln had been fond of poetry from boyhood, and had gradually made himself familiar with large parts of Shakespeare's plays and the works of other great writers. He now discovered, in a strange collection of verses, the one poem which seemed best to express the morbid, troubled, sore condition of his mind, the lines by William Knox beginning, O why should the spirit of mortal be proud, like a swift fleeting meteor a fast-flying cloud, a flash of the lightning, a break of the wave, he passeth from life to his rest in the grave. The Long Nine and the Removal to Springfield Two years was the term for which Lincoln was elected to the legislature. The year following the death of Anne Rutledge, he threw himself into a vigorous campaign for re-election. He had found much to do at Vandalaya. The greatest thing was the proposed removal of the state capital to Springfield. In this enterprise, he had the cooperation of a group of tall men known as the Long Nine, of whom he was the tallest and came to be their leader. Lincoln announced his second candidacy in this brief, informal letter in the county paper, New Salem, June 13, 1836. To the editor or the journal. In your paper of last Saturday, I see a communication over the signature of many voters, in which the candidates who are announced in the journal are called upon to show their hands. Agreed. Here's mine. I go in for all sharing the privileges of the government who assist in bearing its burdens. Consequently, I go for admitting all whites to the right of suffrage who pay taxes or bear arms, by no means excluding females. If elected, I shall consider the whole people of Sangamon my constituents, as well as those that oppose, as those that support me. While acting as their representative, I shall be governed by their will on all subjects upon which I have the means of knowing what their will is, and upon all others I shall do what my own judgment teaches me will best advance their interests. Whether elected or not, I go for distributing the proceeds of public lands to the several states to enable our state, in common with others, to dig canals and construct railroads without borrowing and paying interest on it. 
for live on the first Monday in November, I shall vote for Hugh L. White for president. Very respectfully, A. Lincoln. The earliest railroads in the United States had been built during the five years just preceding this announcement, the first one of all, only 13 miles long near Baltimore in 1831. It is interesting to observe the enthusiasm with which the young frontier politician caught the progressive idea and how quickly the minds of the people turned from impossible river improvements to the grand possibilities of railway transportation. Many are the stories of the remarkable Sangamon campaign in 1836. Rowan Herndon, Abe's fellow pilot and storekeeper, told the following. Winning votes, wielding the cradle in a wheat field. Abraham came to my house near Island Grove during harvest. There were some thirty men in the field. He got his dinner and went out into the field where the men were at work. I gave him an introduction, and the boys said that they could not vote for a man unless he could take a hand. Well, boys, said he, if that is all, I am sure of your votes. He took the cradle and led all the way round with perfect ease. The boys were satisfied, and I don't think he lost a vote in the crowd. The next day there was speaking at Berlin. He went from my house with Dr. Barnett, who had asked me who this man Lincoln was. I told him that he was a candidate for the legislature. He laughed and said, Can't the party raise any better material than that? I said, Go tomorrow and hear him before you pronounce judgment. When he came back, I said, Doctor, what do you say now? Why, sir, said he, he is a perfect take-in. He knows more than all of them put together. Talk to a woman while his rival milked. Young Lincoln happened to call to speak to a leading farmer in the district and found his rival, a Democratic candidate, there on the same errand. The farmer was away from home, so each of the candidates did his best to gain the goodwill of the farmer's better half, who was on her way to milk the cow. The Democrat seized the pail and insisted on doing the work for her. Lincoln did not make the slightest objection, but improved the opportunity thus given to chat with their hostess. This he did so successfully that when his rival had finished the unpleasant task, the only acknowledgement he received was a profusion of thanks from the woman for the opportunity he had given her of having such a pleasant talk with Mr. Lincoln. How the lightning struck Falker in spite of his lightning rod. Abe distinguished himself in his first political speech at Springfield, the county seat. A leading citizen there, George Falker, was accused of changing his political opinions to secure a certain government position. He also had his fine residence protected by the first lightning rod ever seen in that part of the country. The contest was close and exciting. There were seven Democratic and seven Whig candidates for the lower branch of the legislature. Falker, though not a candidate, asked to be heard in reply to young Lincoln, whom he proceeded to attack in a sneering, overbearing way, ridiculing the young man's appearance, dress, manners, and so on. Turning to Lincoln, who then stood within a few feet of him, Falker announced his intention in these words, This young man must be taken down, and I am truly sorry that the task devolves upon me. The Clary's Grove boys, who attended the meeting in a body, or a gang, could hardly be restrained from arising in their might and smiting the pompous Falker hip and thigh. But their hero, with pale face and flashing eyes, smiled as he shook his head at them, and calmly answered the insulting speech of his opponent. Among other things, he said, The gentleman commenced his speech by saying, This young man, alluding to me, must be taken down. 
I am not so young in years as I am in the tricks and trades of a politician. But, pointing at Falker, live long or die young, I would rather die now than, like the gentleman, change my politics, and with the change receive an office worth $3,000 a year, and then feel obliged to erect a lightning rod over my house to protect a guilty conscience from an offended god. This stroke blasted Falker's political prospects forever, and satisfied the Clary's Grove boys that it was even better than all the things that they would have done to him. Abe Lincoln as a bloated aristocrat On another occasion, Lincoln's wit suddenly turned the tables on an abusive opponent. One of the Democratic orators was Colonel Dick Taylor, a dapper but bombastic little man who rode in his carriage and dressed richly. But politically he boasted of belonging to the Democrats, the bone and sinew, the hard-fisted yeomanry of the land, and sneered at those rag barons, those Whig aristocrats, the silk-stocking gentry. As Abe Lincoln, the leading Whig present, was dressed in Kentucky jeans, coarse boots, a checkered shirt without a collar or necktie, and an old slouch hat, Colonel Taylor's attack on the bloated Whig aristocracy sounded rather absurd. Once the colonel made a gesture so violent that it tore his vest open and exposed his elegant shirt ruffles, his gold watch fob, his seals and other ornaments to the view of all. Before Taylor, in his embarrassment, could adjust his waistcoat, Lincoln stepped to the front, exclaiming, Behold the hard-fisted Democrat! Look at this specimen of bone and sinew! And here, gentlemen, laying his big worked bronzed hand on his heart and bowing obsequiously, here at your service is your aristocrat! Here is one of your silk-stocking gentry. Then spreading out his great bony hands, he continued, Here is your rag baron, with his lily-white hands. Yes, I suppose I am, according to my friend Taylor, a bloated aristocrat. The contrast was so ludicrous, and Abe had quoted the speaker's stock phrases with such a marvellous mimicry that the crowd burst into a roar, and Colonel Dick Taylor's usefulness as a campaign speaker was at an end. Small wonder, then, that young Lincoln's wit wisdom and power of ridicule made him known in that campaign as one of the greatest orators in the state, or that he was elected by such an astonishing plurality that the county, which had always been strongly democratic, elected Whig representatives that year. After Herculean labours, the Long Nine succeeded in having the state capital removed from Vandalaya to Springfield. This move added greatly to the influence and renown of its prime mover, Abraham Lincoln who was feasted and toasted by the people of Springfield and by politicians all over the state. After reading Blackstone during his political campaigns, young Lincoln fell in again with Major John T. Stewart, whom he had met in the Black Hawk War, and who gave him helpful advice and lent him other books that he might read law. The Lincoln-Stone Protest Although he had no idea of it at the time, Abraham Lincoln took part in a grander movement than the removal of a state capital. Resolutions were adopted in the legislature in favour of slavery and denouncing the hated abolitionists, or people who spoke and wrote for the abolition of slavery. It required true heroism for a young man thus to stand out against the legislators of his state, but Abe Lincoln seems to have thought little of that. The hatred of the people for anyone who opposed slavery was very bitter. Lincoln found one man, named Stone, who was willing to sign a protest against the resolutions favouring slavery, which read as follows. Resolutions upon the subject of domestic slavery, having passed both branches of the General Assembly at its present session, the undersigned hereby protest against the passage of the same. 
They believe that the institution of slavery is founded on both injustice and bad policy. After several statements of their belief concerning the powers of Congress, the protest closed as follows. The difference between their opinions and those contained in the said resolution is their reason for entering this protest. Dan Stone, A. Lincoln End of chapter 13